Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ed Choice Chats. I'm Drew Catt, Director of State Research and Policy Analysis, and I'm joined today by two other members of our research team. I'm Marty Lucan. I'm the Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis. And I am Paul DePerna, the Vice President of Research. And we're here to give you a crash course on EdChoice's research department. Who we are, what we do, and how we approach our work. Our communications team has compiled some of the most common questions they get online about our research, and we're here to answer them. For anyone new, give the 30,000-foot view of what EdChoice's research team does. We have a pretty clear mission for our research program, and it's basically to inform folks having different perspectives about school choice programs and to help drive the national conversation about educational choice and access in K-12 education. So we have four lines of work that we do, data analysis and synthesizing school choice research on public request or to support our organization's communications and outreach that we do on the website for our trainings and events and social media or other aspects of our outreach. We also conduct empirical research with questions that suggest national or very broad implications. We conduct empirical research within individual states that have more of a local or state level set of implications. And then finally, we occasionally commission thought leadership projects where research and data should inform, advance, or even test staked out positions by the authors or the project leaders. So, Paul, what other resources or services do you provide in the state level and to whom? So we do a lot of state-driven work on public request and for our state partners. And actually, I don't do the state-level work. You guys do the state-level work. Um, So I'm going to turn it over to you in a second. But I'd say that we have uh, three core competency areas where we have some unique strengths. One is looking at school choice program data collection and tracking of any program changes over time. We also do a lot of fiscal research and analysis, and then we do lots of survey-based research, doing polls and surveys of voters, school leaders, and school parents. But I'll turn it over to you guys. Yeah, I I definitely say that I do a lot of the the latter, the surveys of the school parents, uh, the surveys of the school leaders, and up until um, so far, I've been doing a lot of the data collection, the crunching of eligibility numbers for programs, but that has been shifting a lot to Mike Shaw, who, as the two of you know, is our new research assistant, and he's been a wonderful addition to the research team. Uh, But Marty, what specifically uh, do you provide, other than what Paul's already mentioned, or including what he's already mentioned? So I do a lot of fiscal analysis where I cost out the current education choice programs that exist. I'll also conduct fiscal analyses or or produce fiscal notes on school choice bills for legislators, or they could also be for our partners, you know, at the state level. But essentially, in that work, I'm estimating, you know, how much these programs are going to cost uh, state and local taxpayers and public schools. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty valuable information. Yeah, it's often a hot topic. I mean, every, you know, especially the fall into the winter, as you know, sessions are getting, you know, ready to go. I mean, it seems like you get a lot of requests. It's it's a busy time. It's a really busy time for me, uh, for sure. But the stuff that we do, you know, I think it informs the bill design. And I get some pretty positive feedback from what we're providing. So... If there's one publication from EdChoice's research library that newbies should read, 
and you can only pick one each, which would it be and why? So I would definitely say the ABCs with School Choice. I mean, that's our flagship publication that we uh, release every January, and it details a lot of information about every private school choice program in the country. And so over the last five, six years, it's gotten, you know, it's doubled in size because of all the recent enactments of programs and expansions. But we get a lot of uh, feedback that it's a useful publication just to learn more about programs and the different types of programs, school vouchers, education savings accounts, tax credit scholarships, and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good publication. I'd also add Win-Win by Greg Forrester. He compiles and does a systematic review of research on school choice, looking at all the different strands of research that has been done, looking at various student outcomes from participant effects to competitive effects, segregation effects, fiscal, uh, civics outcomes. And it also includes, I think, some really a useful discussion about the methodology. So this could be particularly useful for the lay reader who may not have research chops and wants to get an understanding of what the research says. So he he does a pretty good job, I think, of explaining the strengths and weaknesses as well as laying out fully his inclusion criteria, um, why he includes certain studies and he does not examine others due to you know methodology reasons. And we're also, by the way, have been talking about a longer-term project where we expand on when when, um, we're planning to create a database that would be available for researchers where we extract information from all these studies as well as other strands of research that has not been talked about or covered in win-win, such as parental satisfaction. And so we're planning to extract data and put this onto a web dashboard. So hopefully it'll provide another useful uh, resource for researchers. Yeah, so I think that's something that we hope to have live and running, you know, by the end of next year. But it's it's going to be a considerable process and a pretty uh, big load to lift. Yeah. But we're up for the challenge. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, so I think the two of you each stole... Uh, the publications that I had in mind. But Marty, you, you talking about a, another resource that we're going to have available on our website triggered me to think uh, are the frequently asked questions that we have on our website would be a wonderful resource uh, for someone new to school choice to check out because those do each have a lot of the data and are uh, we try to update them on at least an annual basis. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Drew. I mean, that is something that we we uh, set out to regularly update on our website, and it is very top level from the 30,000-foot view, looking at different types of questions about school choice outcomes, whether they're about participating students, the competitive effects of school choice, uh, public opinion on school choice, fiscal on school choice. So there's a little bit of overlap, and putting it in maybe in more plain English terms, what we publish in WinWin and what we're hoping to do to set out to make available through this study database next year. Sure. And speaking of our website, there is another useful page, not necessarily useful for newbies, but for researchers. We have our bibliography page that lists all the citations for studies that have been conducted on educational choice. And we've gotten some feedback from other researchers and uh, and graduate students as well who found that to be useful, which they weren't aware of it before and wish they heard about it sooner or knew about it sooner for their work. 
Yeah, we've definitely benefited from hearing from other researchers, grad students about, you know, if there's maybe a study that we may have missed that just had recently released. So people are now like even proactively letting us know that, hey, you should, you know, add this to our bibliography page just to keep it current. So we appreciate, we always appreciate that type of feedback from um, from our friends and the public. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now time for the gloves to come off a little bit. So there's a perception among many opponents that EdChoice's advocacy for school choice biases our research. How do we respond to that criticism? Well, I think this is something that's inevitable when we're a mission-driven organization with a clear point of view and we are honest about our mission and very forthcoming about it. So people know where we stand uh, as an organization. And so what we do is we try to be as transparent as possible, whether it's any one of us doing our in-house research or making sure with our external authors that they as well are disclosing as much information as possible about the methods and the data sources that they used for conducting their research. And so for one example, we joined the American Association for Public Opinion Research, APOR's transparency initiative a couple of years ago as a charter member. And so there are very specific guidelines and standards for being part of the transparency initiative. And it's focused on survey-based research or qualitative research. And so when you look at any of our survey reports, you'll see we try to make it not only transparent, but as clear as possible. So also there's a principle of clarity here where we provide a survey profile that really gives all of the information that should be made publicly available for people to make judgments about the quality of the research and any of the potential conflicting factors, if there are any. But it really gives a good outline of how these surveys are conducted. And so the APOR Transparency Initiative is just one example of how we try to really adhere to this first principle of transparency for the kind of research that we do. But the advocacy side of our organization really helps to inform the questions and priorities that guide our research. And so learning from our colleagues who have these really rich and in-depth experiences on the ground in states and capitals around the country, I mean, this is really hugely beneficial for how we think about research questions. And then there's a certain point where we as researchers put our priors and our values kind of on the shelf and to the side a little bit, and we let the questions really guide the projects that we are pursuing, and we follow the evidence. Yeah, I'd say for me personally, um, being a member of the APOR-TI, or the Transparency Initiative, has been wonderful for the survey reports that I've been working on. It really helps get all of those necessary data points down and onto a single page, uh, such as, you know, I'll get questions about, well, who funds your research? And I'm like, well, the, the name of the funder for this specific survey is listed on this page. So another common question about our research, is it peer-reviewed? So this is a common question that we get, especially as I know from our friends in the communications team, uh, they let us know what they say on Twitter and Facebook. It seems that this is an easy thing to have a castaway kind of criticism. And so we do have external reviewers for all of our publicly released research publications. We 
have usually a minimum of two external reviewers. Sometimes we have as many as four or five external reviewers of our research, and that's a process that can take about a month or two for us to collect all the reviews, and then we provide those for the authors. And oftentimes, you know, my job will be to give some guidance in terms of the review suggestions or comments and notes and what may be helpful. So there's a lot of back and forth between the external reviewers and us, and we really value their input. And then we also have an internal review process where I think for any publication that we do, at least two of us do our own internal review at the same time as the external reviews. And then we also have a very thorough copy editing process. And that's always helpful where we are getting the perspective from a non-researcher when it's going through the copy editing process. And so a lot of times we'll be saying that this might make sense to about eight people out there. And so we need to dial it back a little bit with the uh, technical jargon or language and to make it a little bit more accessible to the public. And so that's always really useful to hear those kinds of suggestions from our communications team. So, Yeah, I'll never forget spending months and months on my first report once I joined the research team and being so excited to send it out to reviewers thinking that it was looking great. And then uh, one of the reviewers sent back pages, multiple pages of typed comments, notes, and suggested edits, and I was almost crestfallen, thinking thinking that I had this in the perfect position and then realizing how much work I still had yet to do. Yeah, I have uh, thick skin. Yeah, which I, th- I think just uh, goes to show that when we send these out to reviewers, they don't really take it easy on us. They do a very good job providing multiple critical comments that definitely help guide the report. And... For all of my reports, you can, if you're ever interested in seeing who has reviewed them, you can usually find their names mentioned in the acknowledgement sections at the back of the reports. Right. That is an area of the reports where people can learn who, who did do the external reviews for any of our publications. Right. And these reviews are really detailed, high quality, too. I mean, they're similar to reviews that occur in academic scholarly journals with the blind review process. A lot of my reviews have been similar, I think, in quality detail. Yeah, and to follow up that, Marty, I mean, I would say, and that's another kind of peer review process that we really try to pursue. So we really like to present at conferences, briefings, and other types of meetings. I mean, both of you have been able to do that recently, and we get a lot of awesome feedback from experts in those fields who are attending those sessions. And so that's another way to get really good critical feedback on the kind of work that we do. So, Yeah, I would say it was kind of funny to me that uh, having – university professors reviewing my research and submitting comments that are so much more substantial than what I would have received from my professors in undergrad or grad school. (laughs) Uh, So as researchers yourselves, how do each of you personally determine the quality of a piece of research or a data source? So I think that the gold standard of research is random assignment. This is what medical research is based on. And education policy is fortunate, I think, to have the ability to do this kind of research in some areas, including private school choice and with charter schools as well. The idea being that 
when you have a program where schools are oversubscribed, there, a lottery is conducted to determine what group of students receive a voucher and what group get lotteried out and get business as usual. So that affords us uh, apples to apples comparison where the only difference between two groups being studied, the only difference in the outcome that you're observing is that one gets the pill and one does not, right? So we, I think, focus a lot on that strand of research um, as top quality. Then you have the next tier, silver standard studies, which are based on panel data. This is longitudinal data where you're observing the same group of students over time. And there are econometric or research methods that I think are good quality for studying these program interventions. Not as good as random assignment. And then it goes down from there. For example, probably the bronze or, well, I'm not even sure if it would get a medal, uh, looking at snapshots and comparing groups that aren't really affording apples to apples comparisons. So, so that's kind of how I view the research and evaluate the quality of the data. So everything, how you described the gold standard with randomization and silver standard with these panel-based studies, but they do appropriate statistical adjustments or weighting of data so for making sure a population, for example, is represented. I mean, all that applies to the survey-based research. Yeah, I would say for me personally, it's a lot of conference papers. If a paper is good enough to make it into an academic conference like AEFP, which is the Association for Education, Finance, and Policy, or APAM, Association of Public Policy and Management, um, the fact that the, the committees for those conferences would select research for inclusion speaks a lot to me, in addition to whether or not it's included in a peer-reviewed journal. Well, all that to say there are plenty of very high-quality working papers that are out there through organizations such as University of Arkansas's Department of Ed Reform that are in our realm of work. Um, PEPG has their working paper series that they've had for a long time, which is really great. Yeah, those are highly valuable. Um, and, and even uh, along the lines of New Orleans and Louisiana research. Yep, yep. And uh, NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, I mean, they have a really famous line of working you know, working papers. Yeah, and that's a great way to, you know, view the research without having to wait the potentially three years for it to be accepted and published in a journal. Right. Yep. Right. So finally, where can people get EdChoice Research and how can they get in touch with our research team members? There are several ways to reach out and find us. I mean, one is to just go on our website. Folks can explore our research library, which um, we have over, I think now, 120 publications that we've released and published over the last 15 plus years. And you can find our research library online at edchoice.org backslash research. And you can also sign up for EdChoice emails, which give you regular updates to learn about new research releases. We also have really useful overviews for navigating our School Choice in America dashboard, which details a lot of the statistics and program participation eligibility for the different private school choice programs around the country. And this dashboard and the research library are available on our website, but you can go and learn how to navigate and take the tutorials at our YouTube channel, which is at youtube.com backslash educational choice. 
Yeah, and in terms of the signing up on our website for the EdChoice emails, uh, once you sign up, you can watch your inbox and flesh out your profile with your mailing address if you want print copies mailed straight to your doorstep. And you can also follow our blog or subscribe to our podcasts, where we dive deeper with the authors of our latest research. You can also tweet us at EdChoice. And finally... Our research team's email addresses are on the EdChoice website, so feel free to email us. Paul, Marty, thank you both for joining today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Drew, for moderating and setting this up. This has been fun. Yeah, and thank you to all of you out there that are listening. I hope you are having wonderful days, evenings, what have you, and wish you nothing but the best. For all of us on the EdChoice research team, Have a wonderful day.